0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Katriana Gold, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Stefan Mao about his new book, Sorting Machines, the Reinvention of the Border in the 21st Century. Stefan Mao is Professor of Macrosociology at the Humboldt University of Berlin. His new book was released with Polity Press in December 2022, having originally been released in German in 2021. This English edition was translated by Nicola Barfoot and is essential reading for students and scholars of international ability. In the book, Stefan argues that far from becoming more permeable in the era of globalization, borders are in fact shifting in nature, becoming more selective in ways which reflect and compound certain forms of inequality. Without further ado, welcome to New Books Network, Stefan.
1: Hi, nice to be here.
0: Great. Happy to have you. So. I'd like to start by asking you a bit about your academic trajectory. This book is, of course, only the latest in a series of fascinating publications, and you're quite explicit in the book about how some of the research projects you've been involved in inform the arguments you make here. So I think our listeners would benefit from an overview of that earlier work and how it ultimately led you to write this book.
1: So my background is uh, is inequality research so in a broader sense uh, so I'm a sociologist by by training and uh, did my uh, studies in Berlin at the free university and then I went to the European University Institute in, in Florence where I worked on a project uh, that compared Britain and Germany in terms of uh, social policy, the so-called moral economy of welfare states. And then for many years I was professor at the University uh, of Bremen, so northern part of uh, Germany. And there my interest in borders began, uh, at least my scientific interest. Uh, so I had a standing project in a larger research context uh, working on the transformation of statehood and the basic idea was to to ask whether the state as we know it the container state uh, so the highly regulated uh, state the the form of state sovereignty that was uh, uh, known for for decades uh, is somehow transforming into something else and i was working on borders mainly on borders of uh of the OECD world, so we did a comparison of Austria, Finland, uh, and the US. So some uh, somehow unusual cases, and um, uh, and there we realized for the first time that selectivity is a big issue when you look at uh, at borders. And what we did at that time, we compiled data uh, on. Um, visa waiver programs uh, across across the globe uh, for all countries you can imagine so 200 times 200 countries uh, and for 2 times and then you could really see what is going on because it's a very good indicator for the uh, freedom to move or the right to mobility and uh, then i moved to berlin a couple of years ago to the hum- to humboldt university uh, and here I have uh, a, a new project on borders, and the book was basically a sum up a broader overview of uh, the many insights I uh, we, we we made uh, many of them in in collaboration with other researchers uh, and uh, also related to Publications uh, journal Publications we did earlier and uh, so it was just a uh, way to to put together a very concise uh, yeah and more uh, a more structured overview of the many different transformations borders under, undergo. I should also mention that there's a biographical facet to my interest in, in borders. So I come from East Germany, and in uh, uh, November 1989, when the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall came down, I was uh, uh, did my military service in the East German National or People's Army. And uh, so you can imagine that was quite a crucial biographical experience that led me somehow to an ongoing interest in in borders and the way borders uh, shape societies. And uh, so I kept always an eye on on border issues.
0: Right, that's super interesting. Uh, Yeah, especially the biographical component. Let's get into your core argument. As you say, I think the book is a really excellent overview of a lot of border related issues, I really appreciated both its breadth and also its concision. It's very measured and it's very clear about the research you're drawing on and avoid overreaching at any point. It's an incredibly well-argued text and very compelling throughout. And. I think a good place to start with talking about your core argument would be with your third chapter on the dialectic of globalization. So I really like this term and I wanted to ask you to tell our listeners, what is this dialectic of globalization and how your understanding of globalization differs from common sense understandings of the term or of globalization as a process?
1: Yes, of course, if we, if we use the term globalization, then we have something in mind, namely the movement across borders. Uh, so everything becomes more open and it's more more easy to cross borders, not only for people, but also for capital, for products, for cultural artifacts. So everything moves freely. And uh, in the 90s, we had a big discussion on the effects of globalization, on the capacity of uh, nation states basically to control borders and uh, one of uh, the, the key understandings of that literature was uh, yeah maybe globalization is something like like a flood uh, so uh, leaving the nation state basically unable to sufficiently control its borders so they are forced to open up uh, and uh, On the one hand, of course, to reap the benefits of the globalization. So if you want to become a part of that, uh, then you have to do something. You cannot stay um, aside like uh, a North Korean dictator uh, can. Uh, But on the other hand, but also because of the the enormous forces of globalization that... uh, Basically, have an impact on the nation state and the way it controls its uh, its borders, and um, um, so we had very uh, or many terms on uh, how how to describe globalization. One was deterritorialization, so the emergence of trans transnational social spaces, uh, but uh, also the world is flat, or we are moving towards a world without borders. But a closer look, already 20 years ago, uh, could tell you that this is not the case. Uh, And it's not the case, uh, not only because you find still that borders are working and existent, uh, but uh, that globalization itself produces New borders and new forms of bordering. Uh, so, and I, my claim in the book is that there's a co-constitutive relationship between debordering and rebordering. So, and I use, uh, or I have two different terms for that. I say there's an uh, opening globalization. That's the one I have just described, and there's a so-called closure globalization. So that globalization itself drives. Um, a reinforcement of borders not of old borders as we know them but also of new borders that have shifted their place so the 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 location of control it works with new forms of technology uh, that also uses so-called macro territorial borders within the context of regional integration uh, uh, projects and that is highly uh, selective and these different uh, elements together they are basically uh, part and parcel of of the new borders. And this is a basic idea to say, yeah, okay, uh, globalization takes place, but it has two facets. There are two sides of the same coin. And one is make it easier to travel across borders to move across borders. And the one is make it more difficult, make it harder to cross borders, always depending on the specific uh, group you are talking of. And so um, the the term sorting machine, that is the title of my book, uh, is basically describing that kind of uh, reorganization of uh, of borders, namely becoming more permeable for some and more uh, close and difficult to cross uh, for many uh, others. And if you look at the numbers, for example, uh, then uh, we know uh, that uh, just a very small part of the world population actually travels across borders, uh, and not only for lack of resources, the others don't do it, but mainly for uh, reasons that they are uh, excluded. Uh, uh yeah from from other states from entering other ter- territories
0: right and as an inequalities researcher you're sort of well positioned to write and think about how this these kind of questions of bordering intersect with broader questions of inequality on page 36 i think you write Without the interventions that immobilize parts of the world's population and exclude them from the benefits of globalization, it would scarcely be possible to reduce or remove borders for others. And this dynamic looms very large throughout the book and especially in your fifth chapter, which I'd like to hear more about. I want you to talk a bit more about how and why contemporary bordering practices do increase mobility for some while decreasing mobility for others. And what this does have to do with inequality writ large on various scales. And perhaps you could give our listeners some contemporary examples of this sort of filtering. I mean, you talked about visa waiver programs earlier, um, maybe more along those lines. would be interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I I go back to our uh, visa waiver data set. That is uh, quite an interesting uh, data set because it uh, it really tells you uh to what extent the pattern the global patterns of mobility have uh, shifted. Uh, for example, uh, so we started the uh, first year of uh, 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 collecting these data was 1969. And if you look at the pattern at that time you you are quite surprised to see countries which you wouldn't expect at the top, of the global mobility hierarchy. So sometimes people talk about the power of passports. So in how many countries can you travel with your passport without applying for a visa uh, beforehand and the visa is always a very strong barrier to mobility because it's costly it's time intensive and uh, you can also be denied uh, a visa and uh, and we can see that many people from african countries for example they could easily travel to europe not to all countries but to many countries to belgium to austria to germany to the uk and over time, over the last 50 years, this has shifted uh, and uh, in particular, uh, to the benefit of the Northern hemisphere, in particular to the benefit of the OECD countries of the rich democracies of uh, of the world, they have increased their power of passports, whereas uh, African country citizens uh, have less power now in terms of traveling. Uh, so some can only travel to one or two or three countries uh, without a visa permit, uh, whereas uh, people from Britain or from Germany, they can travel to more than 100 countries uh, across uh, the globe. And I, I claim in that book that uh, 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 people from rich democracies could extend their travel opportunities at the expense of the exclusion of others. And uh, so there's a causal relationship between these two, and there's a very strong uh, international or global mobility hierarchy, how one could call that. And if you think that uh, mobility is a very high value, so the the ability to move freely, to change your place of location has a very high value in our lifestyle, then uh, we can automatically say, so this has happened to the disadvantage of most of the world's uh, population. For and uh, Sigmund Baumann, uh, one of the key persons I am referring to in that book, has uh, uh, had this, uh, this very nice expression: "Some inhabit the globe; others are chained to place." So this is basically an effect of uh, of globalization. Uh, because, uh, yeah, why is it uh, that the case? Globalization would probably not be thinkable. If we would open up all borders for all people, because then uh, people, states really would uh, lose their ability to control, they would lose their ability uh, to tax people, they would lose their ability to provide security for uh, their populations. So they have to be selective uh, to uh, some extent. And the stronger impact on inequality is a side effect. Of uh, the the ongoing interest in control and protect uh, territories, and um, um, so in the in the long run, one could say there's a very yeah predominant mobility pattern. Uh, we mostly see mobility. Uh, between rich countries, uh, and then mobility from rich countries to poor countries, very little mobility between uh, poor countries. And I'm using the term mobility instead of migration, because most people think when we talk about borders, we talk about migration, uh, because uh, the, the most frequent border crosses is, is a mobile person person. Uh, being mobile in terms of uh, business travel in terms of uh, visiting family members uh, in terms of tourism rather than uh, migrating to another country just one out of 1000 approximately uh, border crossings are related to migrations most others are related to some other kinds of uh, of uh, of movements and that is very important uh, to realize that borders are not only about migration; uh, they are mostly about uh, mobility. Though there, of course, there is an inherent link to uh, migration because the, why do we exclude people from coming to other countries to, to other countries? Yeah, because we assume that they might be migrants or visa overstayers. They, so they come with a. Legal document, and then they stay on after uh, the visa has expired. And this kind of uh, assumption—that is kind of uh, uh, basic condition of uh, non-trusting uh, other people—that, uh, uh, of course, uh, leads to specific types of exclusion. Um, I should add maybe uh, one or two interesting uh, figures. So if you look at the data, 80% of the world population has never entered a plane. It's quite surprising because we think this is a, a standard uh, social experience, but it isn't. Uh, per year, just 2 or 3% of the world population uses a plane to go to, a, to, to another uh, place. So it's really a very tiny... Uh, Global mobility aristocracy, if you like, uh, that uh, uh, crosses borders easily, that is a frequent traveler, whereas for many others, uh, the experience of globalization is an experience of exclusion, is an experience of uh, being chained to place, as Sigmund Baumann has put it.
0: So immobility as actually, or relative immobility as, as the norm And that's something that, especially as academics, I think we can tend to uh, forget or it can fall out of view. This conversation also connects really well to your seventh chapter on macro territories, so dismantling internal borders, upgrading external borders. I don't know if you want to talk here about that, but I think you you talk in a really compelling way there about the ways in which internal opening and external border security are interrelated. For example, in the in the European Union, and that obviously connects with what you were just talking about there and some people's mobility.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the the EU described itself as a as a largest mobility free zone uh, 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 all over. Uh, though the the self description is a little bit uh, irritating and misleading, uh, because it does not properly capture what they have in in mind. But uh, of course, we have a de-institutionalization of uh, internal borders within the Schengen space. And most people say, so Germany has no borders anymore because you can go to France or to Denmark or to the Czech Republic or to Poland uh, without a document and you hardly realize that You enter a different uh, country uh, apart from uh, the street signs uh, or the number plates of the cars. Uh, uh but in fact uh, these borders have shifted uh, to uh, uh the the outside borders of of the Schengen areas and so there's a collective border uh and uh, uh all the discussions that we have about um uh the uh, 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 uh the Mediterranean sea or the border between Poland and Belarus and uh, we we can easily see that there's a hardening of border uh, of borders taking place, or what uh, we call border fortifications are being built up, and. Um... It's also an interesting figure, I think, uh, when you look at uh, uh, at the overtime development of border, border walls across the globe, then there's an, an enormous increase. Uh, so in the 80s, we had uh, yeah 12 or 13 border walls worldwide. Now we have nearly 80. And uh, so uh, six, seven times uh, more. Every fifth border across the globe is now a fortified border. So it was just 5% in 1980. And uh, so this happened exactly the same time when globalization took place. So when a moment of uh, debordering took place, all these new border walls uh, emerged, and not just in Europe, But uh, at all continents, you also find that uh, uh, South Africa is building borders. Uh, Saudi Arabia is building borders. Brazil is building hard borders. So uh, everywhere these kind of border activities or the border building activities are taking uh, place. And yeah, exactly when we talk about uh, the world is becoming more flat and we are all uh, now interconnected.
0: Right, yeah, they're re-bordering at the same time as de-bordering, or it's just a, a movement of borders, right? I think you, you also write uh, yeah, earlier in the book compellingly about what factors relate to or determine whether a border is a hard border or a relatively fortified border. And again, that connects back to those questions of inequality we discussed earlier. That, that,
1: that, 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 that's true. So we we, we we did some research where we basically uh, try to... Uh, to, to categorize all land border borders across the world. So in terms of, is it a fortified border? Is it a landmark border? Is it a checkpoint border? So we have four different or five different categories uh, and we uh, try to, to explain where do we find hard borders? And is that related to maybe uh, cultural differences in terms of dominant religion? So between Christian and Muslim countries, uh, is it uh, somehow related to differences in the political system? So do dictatorships build more walls uh, than democracies? And uh, what we see, what the strongest effect uh, um, is, Um, the welfare gap or uh, sort of inequality gaps between uh, neighboring countries. So we have uh very uh, uh, or large differences in terms of the GDP, then it's very likely that uh, the richer country builds uh, a border fence or a, a, a border wall, and uh, uh, so in order to protect itself from uh, not wanted uh, migration or forms of uh, mobility. So it uh, relates somehow. So these kind of uh, global hierarchies of mobility, but also the um, uh, the existence of uh, hard borders of fortified borders relates very much to the inequality issue. And so the global perspective tells you, uh, is, is very telling in that respect, uh, that without a highly unequal world, we probably would have a totally different mobility regime, but also totally different uh, borders.
0: Right. Yeah. And speaking of the nature of borders, in addition to their shifting physical form, we could talk about your sixth chapter, smart borders, informational and biometric control. So maybe changing tack a bit, you talk here about the border as a data extraction point and a site where new technologies of risk classification are enacted. And you also discuss how such borders, smart borders are increasingly connected with other forms of surveillance and data collection. So China's social credit system or the US requirement that visa applicants provide their social media accounts for inspection. And of course, there's a longer history of interconnections between the government of mobility and other security concerns and databases. Like in my research on the Cold War, I found extensive data sharing between the US Passport Office and the FBI. But now the scope and nature of contemporary practices does seem to have shifted, obviously enabled by technological developments in the meantime. So maybe you could say a bit more about that. What is a smart border? And why does all this matter
1: yeah the smart border it's uh, yeah it's it's a term that is used for two aspects so one is uh, basically the surveillance of a border uh, the border line or border regions so with technical means or technological means but the other one is more important for me on the book uh, that is uh, uh the change of um, control technologies at the border. So the old border, basically, how did it function? You went there, you had a passport, you had maybe a visa stamp and you gave your passport to a border guard, and this person checked it and looked whether the photography looks, uh, looks like you, and then you could pass or you were uh, rejected. Now, very often, the border already knows you when you uh, um, uh, approach uh, the border. Uh, so they are pre-stored information, uh, very often biometric information, fingerprint, iris uh, scan. Uh, and uh, so there's uh, so this is a data point where you where you enter, and then you are automatically checked with uh, pre-stored uh, information that is then related to your body, and uh, uh, and we also have a, a development of so-called uh, ABC borders or so automated border control uh, border, uh, forms, uh, where. No officer is needed anymore. Uh, You know that from airports, very often, you have smart tunnels or uh, smart crossing points where uh, certain information on you as a person is pre-stored. And you are, of course, very well uh, identified uh, via biometric information. So you do not feel the border anymore. Uh, We have that at different uh, Asian airports. Um, You use an app, you uh, upload uh, your information, and it's always stored there. And uh, you do not feel the border anymore because it functions like um, a supermarket uh, uh, automatic door. You approach it, uh, the border recognizes you, it opens, and then it closes uh, once you passed. And this is a very interesting uh, development uh, because that also means that for those who are welcome travelers, the experience of the border will basically disappear. You will not feel uh, the border anymore. For many others, the border will stay closed and you will have the feeling so there is no border anymore. I can move freely everywhere. So it's basically, yeah, it's an open space. The world is really um, yeah uh, reachable for me, uh, whereas all the other people, make the opposite uh, experience. For them, it's even more rigid. And the difference, uh, these systems, very often, they uh, use algorithms to classify people into either trustworthy travelers or risky uh, or less trustworthy uh, travelers. There are now uh, a larger number of so-called trusted traveler programs, and they all uh, are based on the same idea Namely, you give data more than you normally would provide when you cross a border. You give data voluntarily. And in return, you are part of the fast lane uh, when you uh, cross the border. You've, it's more convenient. You don't feel the border uh, anymore. And many people, of course, when you see a long line at, at the airport, they might uh, want to shift uh, uh, to, an, uh, to a smart tunnel or a smart border uh, where control is not intervening into your mobility as much and where you do not feel control uh, anymore. Uh, As a UK person, you probably have the experience after dropping out of the European Union that the queues at the airport are not that fantastic and that they get longer. And uh, this is, of course, a very strong incentive uh, uh, to uh, take part in a trusted traveler uh, program. And the more data you offer, Uh, the better might be your status and uh, the more privileged you are when you cross borders.
0: Right. Yeah. And there's also this question about data sharing that isn't necessarily visible to the traveler, right? At the time that they travel, it seems like there's increasing, I think you say, uh, interoperability between various databases about risky travelers, so on and so forth.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, the, now it's it's not only the body that is crossing borders and circulating, but it's also the data related to, to the body. And there are more and more technology firms uh, use uh, yeah so-called identity management uh, systems uh, where you once uh, um, um, give you data and they are used for very different purposes at different places uh, so you use them only once when you travel uh, and then they move along with you to the next checkpoint, to the next uh, uh, desk where you uh, have uh, to enter and we also have a situation where border control becomes very similar to other forms of control in the public space even indistinguishable and in the technology firms that offer these kind of systems are also the same. One U.S. uh, uh, firm I mention in the book is called Clear. Uh, They uh, were founded after uh, 9-11, and now they say so. the coronavirus, for example, was a very big business opportunity for them because we all had uh, apps downloaded on our mobile phones, uh, uh uh where we had information stored on our health uh, status uh, uh, on our traveling traveling history uh, that were used then to enter restaurants or public spaces or uh, libraries and uh, uh and uh, so you see that these kind of control using biometric information, a QR code and so on uh, yeah they can be, also be used at the border or at any other place uh, at a public stadium or at a university campus where you want to uh, select people have some people in and uh, want to exclude some others and uh, i i think uh, we have really a diffusion of forms of controls into the public space which uh, make the difference between a border and a control with the, in the public space indistinguishable. This is also a tendency that you see in terms of shifting borders. Uh, this is a term that is um, used by many now in, in the literature, saying that we need a new understanding of the border. The border is not a border line where two territories meet, but a border is there where control takes place. And that can be at many different uh, places. So we have a diffusion of control into the public uh, space. For example, if you use surveillance systems at public places, uh, at at, at stations, or uh, I don't know, in the tube, uh, then you can always recognize people uh, uh, with uh, yeah facial recognition systems and use, do the same. So if they are not wanted or if they are not entitled to be at a specific place with the same type of technology that you use at, uh, at the border. So, uh, and then you might not need um, a, a border control at the border or at the entry point anymore, because you can find people everywhere. So whenever they appear at a public space, you can recognize them and uh, try to classify them as being either eligible to be there or to be someone who has entered a territory without a permit or without being legal at a specific territory.
0: Right. That's one of the most interesting aspects of these new developments. As we move towards the end of our interview, One thing I definitely want to make sure we cover is your theoretical and scholarly influences. I mean, you've mentioned a few. And like I said, in this book, you address a whole array of order-related questions in a way that's very measured and empirically led, but also theoretically engaged. And you provide some really helpful signposting of a number of key theorists and fellow researchers in text. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about your key scholarly influences in writing this. Whose work really shaped your thinking on borders and mobility?
1: yes i mean uh, uh, theoretical influences they come from people like ulrich beck and sigmund Baumann. so of course uh, big theorists of uh, of of modernity but they also, both of them had a very strong interest in globalization and they have very early on uh, highlighted the ambivalences of uh, of globalization and this is something i have uh, followed There are a number, of course, of uh, migration researchers I'm interested in, mostly people who work more on the empirical uh, front, uh, not uh, so grand theorists, Uh, 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 but uh, uh, so I try to link to different types of discourses. So it's not uh, uh, some, as I said before, some people think, yeah, it's it's migration research. I said, no, it's not. It's uh, related to the way states organize border control and influence or structure uh, mobility. And uh, um, uh, one person that I'm uh, uh, highly also, uh, I think the work is extremely interesting is a legal scholar, Ailet Schacher. Uh, uh, She has uh, written a very interesting book on uh, the birthright lottery, so how uh, citizenship uh, uh, is basically allocated and uh, the rights and duties that go along with citizenship and how uh, um, um, this can be justified. But she has also recently worked on borders and uh, and shifting borders. So this is uh, the term that comes from her. And she has also published a book on, on shifting borders, where she is looking at basically the legal implications of moving borders and border controls away from a territory. Because we know that uh, uh, the legal system is very much based on an idea of uh, of territorial sovereignty and uh, if you think about asylum or refugees they only can claim uh, uh, asylum or refugee status once they arrive at a territory so there's a, a certain premium on uh, arrival if we shift borders and uh, if we have re- remote forms of control, then, of course, the ability of these people to approach a specific territory and to claim asylum status is uh, is not there anymore. So it becomes more difficult uh, for them to do that. And uh, she is uh, basically talking about ways um, uh, to regain legal status also at different uh, places uh, because why do western states do that why do they use forms of remote control yeah for exactly the purpose to circumvent their own legal Uh, or sometimes constitutional commitments Uh, and uh, but if you cannot arrive at a specific territory then of course uh, uh, no one could claim uh, asylum and in the european union we have this uh, uh, safe third country rule but if you are surrounded surrounded by safe uh, countries then it's basically impossible to go to a country and to ask to become uh, an asylum seeker. Uh, you cannot do that because you always have crossed other countries or you went via a plane then the plane would not take you on board uh, because uh, you have uh, no paper that allows uh, to approach a territory.
0: It's a really interesting conversation about that towards the end of the book, right? Really important issues. And I think a great place for us to close. But first, I'd like to ask... What are you working on now?
1: Yeah, I'm currently working uh, on a book, uh, also a book in, in, in German, on uh, new so-called conflict arenas. Uh, and we um, uh, have done a large uh, empirical studies on uh, so the structure and the content of uh, societal conflicts in terms of inequality conflicts, but also in terms of migration conflicts, climate conflicts, climate conflicts, and... Uh, uh, and so-called identity politics uh, conflicts. Uh, and so we have written a larger book, a bigger book, and uh, that will come out end of this year, hopefully.
0: All right. Well, I hope to see it in English at some point in the future. Uh, same sure. same yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's been wonderful talking with you today about this book and you do have a few other books in English, which I'll, I'll put on the page for this podcast as well. So listeners can check those out too. For now, thank you for coming on the show and thank you everyone else for tuning in. Once again, my name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Stefan Mao about his new book, Sorting Machines, the Reinvention of the Border in the 21st Century, which was translated by Nicola Barfoot and published by Polity in 2022. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from Polity or from any other ethical retailer. Thanks all for listening. And thanks again, Stefan, for joining me today.
1: Thanks for inviting me.